Put your glasses up to your life. Hey, 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 hey. Welcome, 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 welcome to the fourth thrilling episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where two writers, one always named Jeff Perlman, talk writing, reporting, digging, leads, transitions, on and on. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated writer. I'm a Bleacher Report contributor. I'm the author of seven books, and I'm probably the world's biggest Hall & Oates fan. The music you're hearing is The Dead Poets from the great MC White Owl. And today's guest is a departure because it's the first time in four episodes and I'm going non-sports. Paul Kane is the Washington Post senior congressional correspondent and a columnist. His column about the 115th Congress, PK Capitol, appears throughout the week and on Sundays. And most important, Paul, who you can follow on Twitter at PK Capitol, is a Delaware blue hen which means he and I actually attended the University of Delaware together at the same time, which makes him an ideal guest for two writers singing the Okay, so Paul, first of all, uh, thank you for, uh, you're my fourth guest, but you are, wow. yeah, you're only number four, but you're number, you're the first non-sports guest. And most important, most importantly, Paul, you're the first fellow Delaware Blue Hen. And I think that's... Uh. Um, and, and, and here's what I want to start with. This is, even though we have all this stuff going on, politics, 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 I was thinking about something that kind of fascinates me, which is this, you and I, we both worked at the student newspaper, the the review, um, Mm -hmm. we, we came up in an era where the goal, you know, was to work for a newspaper and then hopefully work for a bigger newspaper and sort of have this career in media and, and, you know, t- the review was a very intense, I'm sure for you, as, as it was for me, a very intense experience where, you know, we pretty much, it was our fraternity in many ways, you know, yeah. it, was, it was this newspaper existence. And I wonder now, you graduated in 1992, so stepping back 25 years, which is just weird. Um, Ugh. It's weird, right? Crushing. Isn't it weird? Yeah. Um, I got my notification. I got my notification over email um, the other day, uh, the other day, a couple months ago. And I was just so busy in work, caught up here inside the Capitol covering Congress, that I initially thought it was my high school president emailing about my 25th high school reunion. And I opened it up and I said, oh, my God, I'm five years older than I realized. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, my co- it's my college 25th. <laughs> it's weird, isn't it? I, I wasn't even going to go here, but isn't aging? It's like one of those things when you're 20-something, you see it, and it's, it happens to someone else. And then all of a sudden, you're in it. You know, yeah. all, all of a sudden it's happening to you. It's the weirdest. It's the weirdest. Yeah. Thing. Um, no, it's when you look back at pictures from, uh, you know, our review days and we're all scrawny and either have full heads of hair or have, you know, regular colored hair. Not the distinguished set that uh, I have uh, yeah. adopted here in my later years. Yeah, it's strange. Um, so here's my question for you. When you're coming out of college and you you desperately want to go into journalism and now we can almost like a movie, we can fast forward 25 years. Was it worth it? Like, has this career been what you wanted? Has journalism been what you wanted? Was it worth the pursuit? Uh, I don't have to hesitate. Yeah, it, it has been. It's It's been great. Um, you know, I, I'm not going to lie and say it's for everyone. Everyone should do this. That's that's not the case. You know, it's, that's not the case with any sort of career. Uh, but but for me, it, it, it was, it, it has been without question. You know, I've, I've told the story a lot. Um, while I was on campus, 
sophomore or junior year, I took a pre-law class that the greatest professor in poli-sci international relations, uh, Dr. James Souls, offered. And because I figured I was going to be a lawyer, I was a poli-sci major. And uh, I took that class and it was one of those amazing classes that with an amazing professor where everybody gives a standing ovation at the end of the last lecture. And I was one of those giving the standing ovation. And I remember saying to myself, I hate the law. Oh, my <laughs> God. This professor is incredible. And I still hate the law. And um, that's I just took uh, E307, as it was known back then, mm -hmm. uh, intro journalism, because it was a writing requirement. I had to get a writing requirement um, the final two years of college. And that's when I got caught into the buzz of understanding what I really wanted to do wasn't I wasn't I didn't want to be a corporate lawyer. Um, I, I wanted to write about the people that make the laws and what goes into shaping those people and shaping the laws. You know, uh, you had always drifted into sports when we were on campus. I immediately drifted into politics and the administration, and I was covering the, the you know Delaware Faculty Senate and the university president, Dr. Roselle, back then. So I just immediately gravitated to that stuff. And, um, you know, I came down to Washington 22 years ago. Um, and still then in my mindset, I probably thought that you know, my goal would be to slingshot to a bigger regional metro paper like the Philly Inquirer or the Boston Globe and go cover City Hall or something like that. But uh, it just sort of I bounced in a couple different directions here and ended up inside the Washington Post um, at a time when things have, uh, you know, began at a time when things were really down on a, an, an ebb. Um, and now we're just sort of seeing a totally different rebirth of both the organization where I'm in and uh, and I think the entire craft in a way. So, yes. That was a long answer, but without question, I, this is worth it. Are you are you allowed to think out loud what's going on right now in politics is fucking batshit crazy? Like, are you allowed to express that? Like, this is insane. Like, this is crazy. Or do you, as a Washington Post journalist, do you have to maintain a level of hovering above that does not allow you to offer that exact opinion? I, I would not. I would not offer that exact opinion myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I have a plenty of uh, a plenty of experience and um, and sort of a freedom in what I'm doing these days to be able to explain that yes, this is um, this is quite different than any recent period of time in American history, uh, particularly as it relates to the executive and legislative branch interactions and how uh, screwy things are. Uh, I might not express myself in as colorful a way as you did, but for certain it is, um, you know, it's unlike any recent time. And I was here uh, for impeachment uh, and Bill Clinton. And, you know, the craziest days of that era were, um, you know, still so far probably a little bit crazier than we're going through right now. Um, not saying, you know, we still have a ways to go to figure out this era, but... Um, you know, overall, there's just a different sort of insanity and unpredictability. And I think in large part, it's just because you have a president and most of the West Wing are people who just sort of have never done this before. Um, they haven't even most of them haven't even run uh, helped run a rank and file Senate office, uh, let alone an entire administration. Right. Right. So do you 
it's really interesting. You you have a beat. You know, like when I covered when I covered Major League Baseball, um, when I was at SI, I was covering whatever four hundred guys at the same time. Um, you know, because you're covering mm-hmm. yes, you're covering Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa, but you're also covering the backup catcher for the Diamondbacks, and and mm-hmm. you're yeah, you're you're covering Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, but you're also covering Dana Rohrbacher and you know Dara Issa. You're, um, how do you how do you go about this? Like, how do you cover such a huge scope? of America with one keypad? Um, I think that's, you know, I think that that's one thing that I have, when I younger people come up to cover the Capitol, um, you know, I try to make that point, but I, I haven't always been great at it. Um, and one, the one thing that I always try to tell them and I try to live by is understanding the, the meetings that happen where the big decisions are made, um, more often than not, it's it's the entire Republican caucus in the room. So um, Senator Luther Strange from Alabama, who's only been here a couple months, um, he's the successor to Jeff Sessions, the appointee. You know, he's he's in the room just as much as uh, Lindsey Graham or John McCain are in that room as the decisions are being made. And you have to sort of learn and tell yourself, you know, I got to go talk to to him or her. I got to figure out, you know, what they know. Um, and and when the margins are as close as they are on issues like the health care bill that the Senate is trying to pass now, they, Mitch McConnell has two votes to spare. And that makes every single vote that much more important. So, you know, we sent uh, my colleague Dave Weigel to Kansas um, to find out that Jerry Moran, this sort of usually go along, get along type of uh, Republican, He's really pissed off about the health care bill, and right now, as it's crafted, he wouldn't vote for it. And that was a huge bellwether moment where we realized, my gosh, if, if this guy Jerry Moran's not going to vote for the bill, it, it's really damaged. Um, you know, so I have to sort of remind myself to sort of pick out moments where I'm like, all right, go find somebody who is not the usual, uh, not the usually quoted suspect. Um, who's not usually on the Sunday shows because they have a perspective, you know, by by right of constitutional uh, privilege, they have just as much input uh, as Mitch McConnell does because they get one vote. Um, but they also just have a different perspective and can give you an insight to sort of where things are with the government um, and give you a sense of like what's really going on. Are you at all playing to um, playing to egos? And what I mean is. Um... Everyone knows John McCain. The cameras love John McCain. They love Lindsey Graham. They love Mitch McConnell. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go up to the, you know, rarely uh, sought out uh, after in a national way, Alabama senator, um, is there a strategy to that in that he's going to be thrilled that someone's coming up to him? You, that cuts both ways sometimes when you when you're approaching and talking to. Um, you know, the, the normal rank and file who aren't the regulars on Meet the Press. Sometimes they love the attention and other times it freaks them out because all of a sudden they know they're going to be quoted in the Washington Post. And if they get quoted in the Washington Post, a producer on one of the uh, network shows might see it and think, well, we got to amplify this and give this more oxygen on our primetime cable show which then might mean all of a sudden a producer from one of those sunday shows is calling and you know, sometimes these guys want to stay below the radar a little right. bit uh especially during really intense national debates right um 
So there's both. There are times when there are some senators, I'm not going to lie, there are some that are excited as all get out when, you know, they see me or one of my coworkers talking to them and they think they're going to get quoted. There are other times when they are just running for the hills and just saying, go, go, go talk to Lindsey Graham or Chuck Schumer. Right. Do you, how do you feel about that? Like when a guy is running, like when I see, when I see clips on TV on MSNBC or Fox or whatever of a reporters waiting and politicians running the other way, I, I tend to think my gut reaction is, God, you are such a bunch of cowards. But that's, that's simplistic. That's overly simplistic. No, it is. It is. Look, you know, we are, um, you know, there are, there are times when they are, you know, running there, there are times when they're, they're actually going to the restroom in the, one of the hallways that is uh, outside where house Republicans meet. Um, and where the press sort of camps out as they're meeting and having critical decisions that Paul Ryan is trying to figure out whether they have the votes on something. Um, there is a restroom that is literally right down the hall. <laughs> and sometimes they sometimes they really are just trying to go to take a pee break. Um, other times they just, you know, they just don't have an answer to the question. And, you know, I, I, we have a there, there's a free press and there's a First Amendment and I'm all for it, of course. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we should you know, we have the right to go tackle every member of Congress. Um, and, you know, if their answer to the question is simply, I don't know, I don't know how I'm going to vote. Um, I don't know that we're, we, you know, what's we, it would be great to keep asking the question. But if the answer is going to keep being, I don't know. Um, then, you know, to some extent, I think we over we, we browbeat people sometimes that we don't necessarily need to uh, once they tell us, you know, we don't know how we're going to vote or I'm a yes or I'm a no. It's kind of like, all right, we got that answered. Let's focus on the other 240 people who are inside that room. Right. So. Right. That makes sense. Um, I live in uh, California's very interesting 48th district. And my congressman, as I, me- I mentioned earlier, is Dana Rohrabacher. And um, yep. out here, there's like all these heated emotions about Rohrabacher and mm-hmm. kind of like there, it's almost like a mini Trump where people love him. There are marches for him. People hate him. And I, I, mm-hmm. I was thinking how from afar, we sort of view these people, especially with social media now as superheroes and supervillains. you know, like there are people who assign Barack Obama with every negative adjective you could think of. And he's this devious devilish, sinister villain looking to overthrow the world. And then there are people who assign the same to Donald Trump uh, and Dana Rohrabacher and Jeff Sessions and whoever. Mm-hmm. And I wonder when you see it as cl- like, I have a friend who works at uh, at MSNBC and he's always so calm about it all. You know, I'll be like, God, do you see what they're doing? And he's like, you got to take the long view. You got to take the long view. And, and I, <laughs> I wonder when you're, when you're so up close, like, are they, do you not see these guys? as villainous and virtuous? Is there, is there, is there a long view that you have? Are we as a people overreacting at all to what happens? Um, I don't know that we're overreacting. We're with, let me answer it in a different fashion. I think the, maybe the single biggest change in American politics in 25 over the last 25 years Mm -hmm. is the way people view their local congressmen. Uh, it used to be that when I first started doing, politics and ever covered a uh, local congressman that people hated congress that like you know what is your overall view of congress 40 percent would say uh, it's okay 55 to 60 would say nah it sucks um 
but then you would ask the follow-up question, a pollster would say, but are you going to re-elect your, do you feel like your local congressman should be re-elected? 75% would say, yeah, I love my local congressman. I, my guy is great. Um, and it lasted that way, uh, you know, well into the 2000s, somewhere around 2006 or so, which was sort of the first big political anti-wave that came about. You started to see that question change. The overall popularity of Congress began to crash, where before it might have been 40% that approved of the job they were doing and 50 that disapproved. It all of a sudden went down to 20 and then 15 and then 10. And then as that, that was sort of the leading indicator. And then you started asking the question about what about your local congressman and where it used to be 60 or 70 percent love their local guy or their local woman. That now has cratered down into, I think, the 30s the last time I looked. And it is everybody's sort of big view of that of Congress has shifted so negatively that a guy like Dana Rohrabacher, who sort of skated beneath the radar for the first 20, 25 years in, in Congress, uh, in the last several years, has probably had his own profile in his district explode, go through the roof where, you know, people now view him and they don't view him on the local issue. I remember connecting uh, my brother-in-law uh, in suburban Philadelphia, uh, telling him, hey, if you want to get your post office thing fixed, it's a federal issue. You can't go to your township guys. You've got to go to your congressman. And I began to worry that my brother-in-law was going to end up like getting locked up because he started screaming and yelling at um, at these congressional offices. And I know the chief of staff to his local congressman. And I, I jokingly said, uh, please don't lock up my brother-in-law. And he said, no, we're aware. We got his mailbox fit. Mailbox issue fixed. They're going to get mail tomorrow. That used to be what people thought of their local congressman. Man, he fixed my mailbox. I'm going to vote for him. Um, now... They're just looking at Dana Rohrabacher, and you've got a whole bunch of people that are, that are saying now he's just a big apologist for Russia, or you know he's a big pro-Trump guy. That's great. So it becomes so much more divisive, even down to the local level. And as all of that is happening, it's happening through this sort of social media information misinformation, as opposed to coming from the local uh, paper. You know, the Orange County Register. I'm not sure they even have any people out here in Washington anymore. They used to have a two or three person bureau 15 years ago that could really cover Dana Rohrbacher and other uh, members of their delegation. But now you don't have that. So that's sort of a big change, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, it does. It does. It's really it's really um, it's really fascinating because, you know, uh, Dana Rohrbacher has just as an example. And a lot of these guys, they have their elections coming up in 2018. And I, I actually sort of find so he, he's decided he has not had any local town halls and mm -hmm. people here are killing him for it. And I mm -hmm. hate that he's not having them, but I actually kind of understand it because the optics are so bad nowadays. Why would you want to give why do you want a million people screaming at you in front of a bunch of cameras? It's going to go viral. It's going to be it just seems like the benefit of even addressing your constituents, why it might be the right thing to do, isn't really there in a way. Yeah, the, the, that is definitely a factor. And as, as a lot of these guys are making this decision, I think even uh, Paul Ryan has, has indicated that he's pretty unwilling to hold a town hall if that's what the result is going to be. 
Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, you know, we as a, as a republic, um, you know, we elect our representatives to go do our, to, to take what we think are our views and, you know, work on them in Washington. What we get as a right from that is to judge them every two years. There is, there is no guarantee that they have to come back and tell you what to what they think and what they're going to do. Um, you know, the ultimate thing that we have in this country is a vote. It's every two years. Now, um, and f- from that, we don't necessarily have the right to um, scream, harass, threaten um, members of Congress. This isn't Chairman Mao's cultural revolution where we're going to take the people and send them out to the countryside for re-education camp. Um, so, you know, just as it was, there were times where people eight years ago uh, during the you know August town halls of 2009, I think there were people that crossed the line then in sort of their threatening behaviors toward Democratic members as they considered Obamacare. I think you have some people who are going too far now. Um, but one benefit, uh, I watched a member, a freshman from down in the Newport News area of Virginia, um, you know, his race last year wasn't even on the on the map. The Democrats completely missed what was happening in some of these districts. And this was a district that ended up going basically for Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. that had long been a Mitt Romney, John McCain race. They elected this uh, freshman Republican, Scott Taylor, former military guy in his mid 30s, um, really smart. But also a, a you know new age Republican progressive on issues like gay rights. Um, he did three straight nights of town halls in that area. I went the second night. The first night was one of those sort of bonkers. People were really going crazy and heckling him like mad. I was there the second night, and there was no national TV cameras. There was no CNN. There was no MSNBC, and there was a lot of yelling and there was a lot of shouting. But man, he stood there for 75 minutes taking the questions some of them yeah some of them he was dodging some of them he wasn't fully answering but he did it and i talked to some democrats afterward who said huh okay style points i'll give him points for that and he did a third night the three nights combined were something like 3200 3300 people that were and they weeded people out to make sure they were all district residents um he got he won a lot of kudos early on for doing that and getting that out of the way um and he his name doesn't get mentioned nearly as often uh as somebody that they're going to try and challenge in 2018 so if you do it you've really got to sort of embrace it and 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 stand there and deal with it and you might get some upside it's risky. It's right. a risky strategy, but for some people, it does pay off. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, do you? How has the whole sort of fake news, screw the media, we hate these guys? Um, you saw the sort of violent impulses during, you know, a lot of campaign rallies during the presidential election. How has that impacted mm-hmm. you? It hasn't. You know, it mostly hasn't. Uh, impacted me directly you know this year most of this year i have spent in the capital covering uh the various agenda issues um so i haven't been out traveling as much as i did last year when i was on the road for a lot of senate races and house races um i think 
you know what what it does change is just this the, the people just trying to understand what the president is doing and thinking you know most of the the, the most conservative members of congress are the house freedom caucus mm-hmm. um they love the media the congressional media more than any group any <laughs> subgroup of the united states congress they thrive off of the media they are happy to give away their personal phone numbers they will text back and forth with you uh you know don't have to go through the communications director press secretary to get their attention they're just you know get come talk to me they don't care um wait why do they love it so much why are they the group they i think they i think they see it as their leverage point they can you know they go through they they talk through the media um uh, to basically tell leadership that they're not bluffing. You know, you, you get into these meetings and you got five or six people who are saying, well, no, we're really we're really going to be against that bill. And we've got 10 or 15 more who are going to be against that bill. And that's enough to sink it. And sometimes leadership, um, whether it was Nancy Pelosi, John Boehner, or Paul Ryan, sometimes they're like, yeah, you're, you're just kind of bluffing. But when they use then they can use the press to basically deliver a message saying, no, we are really against this, and now we're saying it publicly. And once we say it publicly, we're more locked in. It's not just us in a room saying we might vote against something. So I think they like to use um, the press and the congressional press corps to sort of send messages to the leadership, to other other wings of the Republican conference, Um, and and it gives them oxygen. And – they, uh, you know, otherwise the life of a rank and file member of the House can be pretty quiet. They can get, there are lots of times where there's not a lot of, uh, of focus. And I think they see themselves, the Freedom Caucus, as a group that, you know, band together, put 30, 35 of them in the room and stick together. And all of a sudden they are a powerful voice. Right. And, you know... Trump can scream fake news all he wants, but, you know, up on the hill, like I said, the guys who love the media attention the most are the most conservative members of Congress. That's really funny. Um, do you think a lot of these guys or do you see it, you know, obviously you're not giving names here, but do you feel like there's a growing number at all of Republican Republicans in Congress who sort of see Trump's behavior and go, what the fuck? Like, what? What is it? Is there any of that at all? Do you sense? Um, oh, without question, it's, it, it's, they, they don't, you know, they've never dealt with this before and they've never dealt with such an unprepared president. And, and I'm not saying that, that I think that's just a purely objective statement. This is somebody who is, who has had less preparation for the office than anyone, you know, even Barack Obama had, uh, two full years in the U S Senate and on the Senate foreign relations committee before he even headed out the campaign for the presidency. Um, you know, the last two Republican presidents were, were Bush's, H.W. and W. And, you know, by the time H.W. became president, he had been vice president for eight years. He, you know, he had served as the chair of the RNC, uh, the director of the CIA. Um, and, and W. had just come up through that family lineage. And they knew how to do things. They knew how to get, they knew how to nominate people. You know, there's this whole sort of crisis of the State Department and other agencies that 
they just haven't been able to get people through the Trump vetting system and nominate them and send them up to the Hill. Um, whereas the Bushes, oh, man, they, they knew how to do things like that. They knew how to do the basic blocking and tackling, you know, and um, and and the, the, the Trump doesn't know how to do that. And Reince Priebus was a, you know, six years ago, he was a state party chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party. He's not he's not your standard White House uh, chief of staff. Um, so, yeah, these guys. They're trying to figure out all the contours of the West Wing. And then on any given day or moment, Trump himself will just veer completely off script. You know, there's there's a long running joke now because in the middle of June, it was supposed to be infrastructure week. And, uh, you know, that was a week that, again, got focused on Russia stuff and, and you know, Twitter fights and everything else. And, you know, each morning somebody in the, you know, the reporting world or one of the liberals would tweet, hey, infrastructure week's really going well here. You know? oh, man. Right. So they don't they, but they don't know what to do. That's the that's the issue. A lot of people say, you know, they have to stand up to him. And the Republicans sit there and think, well, well, what exactly does that mean? You know, and they're still trying to figure that out. It's so fascinating. I feel like there it's I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty liberal guy and it's hard for me to feel overly sympathetic. But it just mm-hmm. seems like I, it's almost like you like, what are we supposed to do here? Like, like, what are we supposed to do here? I don't know what we're supposed to do here. What do we are we supposed to scream down our own? party's president but also in a way it seems like it's the world's biggest trap because if you now acknowledge that this guy is not a good president well you backed him during the election doesn't that sort of doesn't it just damn yeah. you even worse in many ways yeah on that political side it sure does you know and they are you know their their fallback now what you see this week as you know don jr is tweeting out all these emails which none of which make him look good um, besides the general befuddlement, the reaction is simply, you know, there is an ongoing investigation by Bob Mueller and, you know, we hope he continues his work and the Senate Intelligence Committee is conducting its own investigation. And that seems like a dodge, but at the same time, it is reality. You know, there's even the aside from a few House Democrats, there's nobody that's calling for impeachment right now. Right. Chuck Schumer and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are very, very public and firm. Like, no, we don't want to. There's no we don't have that yet. Right. So everybody's sort of in this maze of well, what the hell are we supposed to do while all of this is going on? And Mitch McConnell's answer to that is, well, we just keep plodding along and we're going to try and do this. We're going to do health care and then we're going to stick around for a couple extra weeks bunch of nominations and sort of almost pretend like it's not happening right well you you've uh you've covered mcconnell for a while now and um yeah during the whole merrick garland supreme court thing i honestly i thought to myself but again i'm just a, a novice from the outside i thought there's no way this works like there's no way they can't there's no way this is gonna work and from a from a purely political standpoint it just seemed genius and i wonder when you were covering this and you were watching mcconnell and watching the mechanisms did you think, wow, this might work, or do you think this is a horrible idea, or what were you thinking as it was occurring? So initially, you know, I, you know, I remember where I was the night Scalia died. I remember, you know, the moment McConnell, and within an hour or two, declared that the seat would stay vacant, and I remember thinking, that's just unsustainable. 
you know, and and the Democrat, I thought, you know, the Democrats will just utterly, you know, savage him. And and you know, I also thought that Democrats would um, use this as a as a way to sort of really put Obama back on the ballot, given that Obama was increasingly popular. And Trump and Hillary were increasingly unpopular throughout the whole thing. And I thought, you know, this is a way to go into African-American neighborhoods in Philadelphia and Cleveland and other uh, key cities and say, this is your last vote for Barack Obama. They're trying to steal his Supreme Court seat. Um, Instead, I don't know, the Democrats just kind of played it straight as if they thought that getting, you know, newspaper editorials in cedar rapids iowa was was the pressure point and instead mcconnell played it as just pure raw politics and you know i traveled to i don't know seven different states for senate races last year and everywhere i went every republican always talked about that vacant supreme court seat they said to conserve it was their play to conservatives of and remember one final thing there's a vacant Supreme Court seat, and if Hillary Clinton is elected president, your last chance of having a check on that seat is a Republican Senate. That was what they all thought they were doing, basically. They all thought that they were you know, using it as a, as a check against Hillary as president to get them elected. Right. Um, and instead, I think it helped elect Trump because the conservatives also saw that as well. You know, the real evangelical conservatives, I think they voted in bigger numbers. If the exit polls are right, they voted in bigger numbers for Donald Trump, evangelical conservatives voting for, you know, a thrice married uh, New York, uh, (laughs) New York liberal on a lot of issues. They voted for him over um, more than they did for Mitt Romney. Um you know, it, it just it was an ingenious move by McConnell that, you know, Democrats both curse and, and swear at and, and get really angry about. And then also in their you know private moments, they tip their hat and they go, man, he, he pulled it off. My God, you know what? What an amazing thing. I, right. You know, I interviewed McConnell in February and he said the night that he was um at the White House, and they introduced Neil Gorsuch. Uh, he said it was one of the finest nights of his thirty or forty years in American politics. That night, that's um, amazing. And he, yeah, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. That's amazing because it was so, like you said, it was so clear. It wasn't like he was trying to really hide what was going on there. It was very clear. Oh, it was transparent. Yeah. It was transparent. He, you know, when he wants to uh, say something, get something done, there's little transparent. There's little hidden in. McConnell or his motives. Yeah. He will say things sometimes that people just blink and go, did he really just say that? My, my single biggest goal is to keep Barack Obama from having a second term. And he's like, yeah, that, that's true. That's my goal. That's amazing. Um, and he did it and he did it with Garland and, uh, and Gorsuch, you know, look, I think that should, people want to call it the, uh, the Garland seat or the Scalia seat. I think it's the McConnell seat. Yeah. That's what I've said. Um, I'm gonna. I, I like to talk a little writing here. 2015. I have a lead in front of me that you wrote that I really enjoyed. In fact, it's so funny. We, you and I again. Oh we came up at the University of Delaware, mm-hmm. and we came up under guys like Dennis Jackson and, and Chuck Stone and Harris Ross. And and I kind of when I read this, I actually thought of our professors 
uh, reviewing it and saying that's a really good lead, which is um, I'll just read it real quick. Uh, Joe Biden had one final bit of advice, a warning, really, for those for these very successful students. No matter how accomplished their lives turned out to be, they would not be able to control their fates. Reality is a way of intruding, the vice president told thousands of graduating Yale University students two weeks ago. Biden spent the next several minutes unfurling a story he had told hundreds, if not thousands of times before his improbable 1972 Senate victory, the car crash that took his wife and daughter, the week spent coaxing his two young sons toward recovery. What the crowd didn't know was that the reality had again intruded, that reality had again intruded in the vice president's life, hiding behind a pair of uh, aviator sunglasses that played along with the irreverent traditions of Yale class day. Biden delivered the speech knowing that his eldest son was dying of cancer. The same son whose injuries in the crash forced Biden in 1973 to take the Senate oath in a hospital room beside his son's bed. First of all, that's really good. Like so good. And I, I know it's weird to compliment a lead from two years ago. Um, and I, I wonder, I, I'm going to take you back in time a little. How, how did you, I love the process of writing and the process of how you think about stuff. Like, how did that happen? Um, so in the spring of 2015, we had realized at the Washington Post that we did not have a pre-written obituary of Joe Biden, the vice president. Um, to those out there who are listening, going, what? <laughs> people forget this. We pre-write obits of really important people, especially when they get a little bit older. Wait, Paul, and, I want to interrupt and just – I don't want to brag, but I did write the obituary for Loretta Lynn's husband for the National Tennessean in 1996. So I don't want to steal your thunder, but I was the one who wrote it. You probably read it. You're probably aware of it. It's pretty pretty strong material anyway go ahead absolutely yeah. um so they gave me the assignment as uh somebody who had you know known biden um since i don't know the late 90s covering the senate and um um so i set out to write this joe biden obituary but in the process of doing the reporting for that i found out that i was going to be writing a different obituary first that Joe, that Bo's, that they were keeping it pretty much a secret that Bo's cancer had returned. And how did you and, find that um, out, Paul? Uh, from people that were close to Biden that just sort of it, it took it on a act of faith and trust. And they just sort of said, listen, you, you need to understand something. Uh, you need to understand what's going on right now. And here's what he's dealing with. And it was all sort of given to me in a very deep background, off the record sort of context. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't able to report it. I wasn't able to um, able to write much about it, but I was able to sort of mentally prepare. And that was that was on a Saturday. And one per the person who told me this said, Tomorrow afternoon, he is delivering this speech at Yale that they have, uh, unknowing what was happening with Bo, the Yale students had written and said, we want to know, we know your personal story, and we want to hear how you, you know, went through such tragedy and overcame that. Um, so that next afternoon, I, I went on the Yale site and watched it streaming video. Um, you know, one of the few people who probably watched, who was either in attendance or watched, knowing what he was going through. So it was only two weeks later on a Saturday night when uh, when Bo passed um, that I, I sat down at my 
computer and just wrote a quick, straight news story, probably three or 400 words. And the next morning is when I got up and I said, and, you know, his advisors, Biden's advisors had told me on uh, days before Bo's death, they had said that they felt like that speech was one of the single best crystallizations of Joe Biden's life, his journey, his politics and everything. And I realized that that would be the prism for which I could sort of take take you from the two bookends of his most important moments of this guy's life. His incredible 1972 Senate election victory, which is followed by this terrible crash that takes his wife and his daughter. And then, you know, flash forward to uh, 2015 as he's near the end of his vice presidency and again has this tragedy. Um, I just thought that that speech was the, the real sort of crystallization of that. And that's that's how I got to that. Oh. Um, so, yeah, that's awesome. It was, uh, yeah. Did you think... Um... Um, do you think if 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 if, if, if the, his son had not passed, Biden would have run in the last election? Um, so here's the the, the Shakespearean type of uh, side of all this is Joe Biden was a well liked vice president all the way through into 2015. Um, but then what happened with Bo and the grace through which he carried himself? throughout that summer and fall um there was an amazing appearance on the colbert show um where he talked about it um he talked about the death he talked about things his his stutter actually reappeared on the colbert show if you ever watch that clip closely you'll see that something he overcame while he was in high school um a bad stutter was coming back at certain moments that the rawness of all that took him from being a well-liked person to being a just, you know, beloved person. His own, his approval ratings and favorability ratings were higher than the president's actually for most of the last year in office. Right. Uh, Michelle Obama, I think was the only one, if you, if you did polling and looked at it, Michelle was the only one who usually did better than Joe. Um, so that's what made it even more uh, compelling for him as a, as a presidential figure that he had to go through this, but that also made it more difficult and almost impossible for him to run because he still spent most of 2015 in just, in just grief. A couple months after, uh, a couple of months after he backed out, he did an October Rose garden, October 2015 Rose garden. He announces with president Obama at his side that he's not going to run a couple months later. He's here in the Capitol for a uh, Dick Cheney event. He was sort of the only Democrat that was willing to go to this Dick Cheney bust unveiling. <laughs> um, and as as he, he was speaking and he was funny and he was long-winded and he was going sideways and all over the map, it was vintage Biden. Midway through, he started to thank Lynn Cheney for family had done after Bo passed away. I don't know exactly what it was. I think there were... Don- cards and letters and donations to Bose Foundation, stuff that the Cheney family did out of respect to Biden. Mm-hmm. He started to break down halfway through talking about that with looking at Lynn Cheney. And then he just stopped and jumped into a complete segue into a story about 
what it was like to be a, a freshman uh, Democrat in the Senate in 1973, a story that he has told 10,000 times before, maybe 100,000 times. It was sort of like his safety move, jump into that and talk about that rather than continuing to talk about Bo, because if he did, he was going to break down in public. I don't think, given where he was emotionally, had he run for president, had he gone through the town halls and had he listened to people talking to him and thanking him and all, I, I just think he, he wasn't emotionally there. He wasn't capable of running um, without just completely breaking down at various moments, um, all of which might have, in a weird way, might have made him more likable and more possible to win. Um because, you know, there's nothing more appealing to voters right now than a, a normal human person. Um, but I just, I don't think it was there for him. The timing was right. And that's why it's like so Shakespearean, right? I have to say it that way. Yeah. You know, to lose his son and to have that become, to make him such a more humanized, more real person. But at the same time, it made it so emotionally impossible to run. Yeah, that was a hell of an answer. Um, I actually really love the video. I've watched this about five times. I'm kind of, I'm a little weird political junkie where he swears in Marco Rubio and Marco Rubio comes in and, you know, Marco Rubio just, you know, spent months bashing Obama, you know, running for mm -hmm. the nominee and he goes, Marco. And then he, he's so nice with the guy's kids. I just, I, I feel like the more people see that, or there's a video there's a video of Tim Russert hosting a Q&A with Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford and the two mm. guys talking about how good friends they became. And I, I wish we as a people could see more of that because I feel like we need it. You know, that, that is something that has definitely changed um, up here about what, you know, there, there still exists these, some personal bonds, some personal interactions tonight on the mall, Bob, Casey's uh, Pennsylvania Senate office is a Democratic office is having their annual Keystone Cup softball game with Pat Toomey's Republican Pennsylvania Senate office. And it's all in good fun and good cheer. Um, but overall, the relationships have really sort of just deteriorated. There's just not the same bonds. And part of that is just a generational turnover. Um, there have been so many new senators that have come in, um, you know, at the start of this year, out of the 100 senators, I think 50 or so had only been here under Barack Obama as president. Um, you start doing the numbers like that and you realize it's, it's such a new place. So maybe it'll, it'll, uh, those bonds will, will come together, but it just doesn't seem, uh, uh, like it's it's anything the way it used to be, and that sort of the, the personality bonds that Ted guys like Ted Kennedy uh, used that could sort of almost overrule anybody. Sometimes his own Democratic leader, uh, Ted Kennedy, would just roll because he had so many friends on the Dem on the Republican side, and he had his committee, and he could just roll people through his own personal power uh, personality. That just doesn't happen anymore. Right. Um, and that's a big change. Right. Let me ask you a final question. Um, on the one hand, we have, you know, a president who sort of takes on the media nonstop and fake news has become this big hashtag and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and on the other hand, I, I recently likened, and I'm, I'm not alone, I'm sure, 
what the Washington Post and the New York Times are doing in their political coverage to watching Ali Frazier just go back and forth and back and forth in, in a great way. I mean, it's, I'm always going to one paper, then the other paper, then the other paper. Um, are we witnessing in an odd way, even with all the layoffs at places like ESPN, uh, uh, you know, Fox, blah, blah, blah. Are we witnessing a rebirth of political journalism to a certain degree? Yes and no. Um, on our on our level, uh, you know, we are the post is blessed that, you know, we have a owner in Jeff Bezos who is, you know, worth a bajillion dollars and who, you know, what seemed almost like a lark uh, almost four years ago when he decided to buy the place um, has become a real sort of uh, personal pride for for bezos um he sees it as a as a you know a, 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 not resurrected but a organization that was sort of listless floating in the ocean and now is you know a full running machine that is you know not just writing stories and breaking incredible stories about this president but you know covering everything every inch of the healthcare debate on on the hill um to expanded sports coverage to just having a bigger a bigger gusto to it and getting more readers than we ever could have imagined. Um, and I think, uh, I think the times is, is going through that as well. Um, and they're, they're, you know, combined, we're getting more readers than either of our institutions could have suspected. So that part of it is, um, you know, I, six years ago, the post was in a, in a, you know, just a, I don't know, a bad spot. We'd gone through so many, rounds of buyouts forced buyouts you know what one editor called back alley buyouts you know hey thank you for your service it's been great take this money and please leave uh to now we're just you know expanding and more coverage into the white house into congress um into federal agencies um but i do still worry about the local regional metro papers mm -hmm. um because that's where you know, there's only so much the Washington Post can do. There's 435 members of the House of Representatives. There's 100 U.S. senators. There's 50 governors, uh, state legislatures everywhere, city councils. We can't cover all of those. We need, we need, you know, local state-based entities to still be out there and covering away and 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 covering and uncovering corruption. You know, 12 years or so ago. Uh, a couple of guys at the San Diego Union Tribune broke a story about their local congressman, Duke Cunningham, um, whose uh, home was bought by lobbyists at 100% markup for like two million bucks instead of what should have been a million dollars. And together they unraveled an amazing story in which this guy had a local defense contractor based in Southern California who literally had a bribe menu. He had a menu, a cocktail napkin that was like uh, 10 million, 1 million equals 25 million in defense earmarks. It was incredible. Right. Within a, within a couple of years, both of those reporters were gone from the paper. Um, and I don't think that the San Diego Union Tribune has much of any presence here left in California, uh, left in Washington. Yep. And, and if it does, it's probably like a shared uh, reporter with other news outlets. And... I fear that those papers are continuing to shrink, and that means less and less focus on 
the local congressman, on the local mayor, on the state senator, and the governor. So that's my long-term fear. Yeah, that's a bummer. Um, well, I'm going to uh, – <laughs> no, it is. It's different. I mean, I'm a newspaper. I know. We all entered this business going into newspapers. That's what we did when we came out of college, and now – um, I, I, I should have started, I should have ended it differently. I should have gone with local depressing and then end on happy. Note. Yeah. But I just wanted to, you know, my reminder to people, don't just subscribe to the Washington Post and the New York times, go buy your local paper. That's yeah. what I said, everybody. Well, Paul, I want to wrap this with a, a tweet. I just saw that Donald Trump tweeted today. He said, uh, the white oh, house, no. the WH is functioning perfectly focused on healthcare tax cuts reform and many other things. And then he added, I have very little time for watching TV. So all's good in the hood. He's all good. <laughs> um, Paul, you know, as a, uh, I have to say, as a, uh, as a guy who worked with you at the college paper, it is, um, I'm being sincere when I say this, it is a thrill to sort of see what your career has become and, and sort of, there are survivors like us who have lasted in journalism and, uh, you know, makes me, makes me proud to be a product of the old review. So thank you for, uh, thanks for joining me today. Hey. That goes that goes both ways. I'm I'm I still remember the day that this skinny kid showed up in the uh, review with a story about how Delaware refused to play Delaware State because Dell State was the traditionally uh, African American school. And I remember looking at the editor saying, "Ah, uh, is this really true? Because if so, it's kind of a big story. <laughs> your 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 career turned out pretty good, buddy. Yeah, well, thank you." Again, I want to thank Paul Kane from the Washington Post for slinging Yang today. Two writers slinging Yang can be heard on Bumpers at Bumpers FM or downloaded on iTunes. If you enjoyed this, please consider leaving a review. And if you have any guests you'd like for future episodes, hit me up at angold22 at gmail.com or Twitter at Jeff Perlman. Thanks to MC Whiteow for the beats. Thanks to Paul Kane of the Washington Post for the time. And until next week, please keep writing. But when I saw Promo's book, I knew I died and went to heaven. heaven.